Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And, well, I've been kind of busy since we were last together here in the salon. And while I was away, Justin E. and Ian W. both made direct donations to help offset some of the expenses we have here each month in the salon. On top of that, Luke A., Antonia L., Sean F., Eric S., and Larry M. all became new supporters of mine on Patreon, which you'll be hearing much more about in the weeks to come. And before I introduce today's talk, I first want to make a quick announcement about the Psychedelic Film and Music Festival that will be held in New York City from October 1st through the 7th of this year. In my next podcast, uh, which will be posted in a few days, I'll play a conversation that I had with the producer of the event. But since the time is so short before the conference, I wanted to uh, give you a little heads up right now, and I'll put a link to that event in today's program notes, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.com. Now, for our fellow saloners who have been writing to encourage me to do a little more talking in these podcasts, <laughs> well, today it's all Lorenzo, so uh, I hope you'll get your fill for a little while. What I'm going to play right now is a recording of the talk that I gave last week at the Imagine Music and Arts Festival, which was held on Orcas Island in the state of Washington. Now, if you've been with us here in the salon for a while, you know that a little over five years ago there was a lot of criticism about the fact that most of the speakers at psychedelic conferences were old white men. <laughs> so I decided to reduce the number of old white men on stage by at least one. And it's now been over five years since I've given any talks at all. In fact, I've only left this county one time in the past five years. It's uh, been the life of a hermit for me, but no more. A few months ago, my dear friend Darren Leong came to San Diego and stayed with my wife and I for a few days. His main reason for the visit was to see if he could convince me to stretch my wings once again and speak at the Imagine Convergence Conference that he'll be producing next March. Well, uh, after spending some time with Darren, I got the itch to travel once again, and so he also invited me to speak at the Imagine Festival, which he also produces with his friend, a man who is one of the most peaceful people I know, Ben Browner. This was a wonderful experience for me, and I want to thank the rest of the Imagine staff and the many volunteers, particularly Emily and Bridget, without whose help these festivals simply couldn't function. These festivals are a precious resource for our communities, and I appreciate all of the work that goes into putting on an event like this. It was great fun for me to reconnect with some friends who, well, I haven't seen in quite a few years, and one of these longtime friends was Mark Wilbur. I lost touch with Mark after the last Oracle gathering, but I learned that he is now married and has a son. And I know that a lot of our fellow saloners also know Mark from the many festivals at which he is uh, sometimes the lead sound technician. In fact, he managed the sound systems on that big 747 on the playa at Burning Man this year. Now, Mark had spent several of the past years in Vietnam, where I have friends that are so close to me I feel we are family. But now he's living on one of the Galapagos Islands. And the reason I'm bringing this up is that Mark informed me that 
Well, we have a long-time fellow Salarner living there. His name is Hutu Gopagas, and I hope I'm pronouncing that close to right. And I think that he may even have a podcast himself. So, uh, Hutu, please send me a link to your podcast, and I'll mention it here in the Salon. For many years now, uh, we've had fellow Saloners in over 100 countries. But as far as I know... Hutu is the only one who lives on the Galapagos, which uh, <laughs> for some reason gives me a really good feeling. So thanks for being with us. And uh, now let me take you to one of the big tents at the Imagine Festival where I gave my first presentation in five years. So uh, let's see if I still remember how to ride this thing. Today we've got Lorenzo Haggerty, uh, who Darren is going to introduce as they go back a little ways. Um, this will be going until 4 o'clock, and we'll pretty much be wrapping things up for the day. Oh, excuse me, I'm sorry, there's a Gene Keys workshop after that with Elijah Parker and Amelie Grace. Uh, you may have heard them in the Zavi Dome last night. They're playing again today at Entheo. I could say a lot more, but I'm going to stop there, pass it to Darren. He's going to introduce Lorenzo. So glad you're here. Enjoy. <coughs> Um, just uh, real quick, my friend, my dear friend Lorenzo Haggerty has has traveled, you know, from Southern California to come be with us today. Um, he's made a profound impact on my life. Um, we met, I don't know, 20, 2006, Burning Man. How long was that? Twelve years ago at Burning Man. Yeah. And um, at that event, he was producing something called the Planque Norte. Uh, event at Burning Man and it was featuring like some of the most you know um, like I guess like founders of some of the um, psychedelic scenes and so Lorenzo runs a podcast called the Psychedelic Salon which features you know all sorts of like uh, authors scientists thinkers um, around the, the, the field of psychedelics and um the information that I've gotten from that podcast um, has just like informed me on so much stuff, and like really has formed my my view about how some of these things work and where we're at. And so, um, I just want to say it's, it's been an honor to know you, and an honor to have you here. And um, and I guess Lorenzo is gonna talk about psychedelics in the age of AI, right? <laughs> right. All right. Cool. So, thank you so much for being here, and I'll hand this over to Lorenzo. Well, the honor is all of ours to thank Darren and Bridget and all of the volunteers and staff. Without their thousands of hours of work they put into this, we wouldn't all be here today. So, uh, thank you all. I really appreciate that. And, and for Darren especially, I, I uh, five years ago, I, I was getting a lot of criticism about the old white men up on the stage, and I, I think they were right, and so I, I quit. I haven't left San Diego County in five years until now. <laughs> Darren flew down and spent a couple of days with me and wanted me to talk to me about convergence that's coming up in March, and I got really excited about that, and then I said, gee, you've got me interested again. I, I think I'd like to go to your festival, and so here I am. So he got me out of my cave, out of cave so... Darren has kick-started the next phase of my life. And, uh, <laughs> and, and you know, I'm sitting down. I, I, full disclosure here, I, my daughter says I'm a dusty old fart. Uh, <laughs> when I was born, Franklin Roosevelt wasn't even halfway through his second or third term yet. You know, so I'm, I'm 76 years old, and so I feel I can sit down rather than stand up and talk. But uh, 
you know, what, what do I have that I can bring here to talk about psychedelics and AI? Uh, I don't have anything really that you all don't have except for one thing. I have a lot more time on my hands because I retired in 99, uh, kind of accidentally. But, uh, so I read and I think and I write and that's what I do. How many people have, have heard the Psychedelic Salon? Oh, wow, that's more than I thought. Fantastic. And for, for those of that you haven't, I'll give you a real quick, uh, you know, uh, brief bio and uh, uh, self-congratulations, uh, uh, I guess. I don't know. That uh, I, I do have a degree in electrical engineering, but it came in 1964, uh, and it was at an all-boys school called Notre Dame, which gave me a really bad education, and I am not a fan of theirs anymore, in case you're wondering. <laughs> so, uh, but I do have I have that background. I've uh, worked in a lot of uh, technical areas. Then I, I uh, well, I was a stuntman in the movies. I served in the Navy and and was so well into the system, I made it up to the rank of lieutenant commander. Then I practiced law in Houston. Then I started a one of the first personal computer companies. And at one point in time, we had uh, three thousand people in seventeen states selling personal computers. Amway style, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of embarrassed about that now. But you know, that was back in the early days before IBM was in the business, and they, when they came in, they crushed us and TI and Commodore and Osborne. We uh, we all got crushed out of the business, but it was a great experience. And as a result, I've stayed involved in tech. And then for a number of years, I was the internet evangelist for Verizon Data Services, and they paid me an exorbitant sum of money to travel around the world and convince. Uh, executives and phone companies that the internet was the next best thing uh, coming along and that, that was back in the 90s you know before people were really uh, into it and so uh, I've had that connection with technology and I, I've had a connection with uh, psychedelics for a little while but I was 42 years old before I had my first uh, experience I didn't even hadn't even smoked pot I'd been to Vietnam and back and all that but at the time in Texas, you know, people were getting 30 years to life for a single joint, and I would have lost my law license and all that. And fortunately, MDMA was uh, legal at the time, so I tried it. And uh, the night I, I had my first experience, uh, at the beginning of the experience, I was an Irish Catholic Republican lawyer. <laughs> And the next morning, I was still Irish. <laughs> Everything else is now gone. So my friends from back then are convinced that drugs are really bad because look what happened to Lorenzo, you know? And uh, uh, had, I, had I not found MDMA, I probably wouldn't be alive right now. It's really been a, a big thing in my life. But we'll get to that. So... Uh, Let's, let's talk about AI first, because it's, it's something that's uh, been around for a long time, but it's only really making the news a lot now because of the, the big jumps forward. And like I said, you know, I don't work in the field of AI. I've got a few friends in it. And uh, back in 2000, when I published The Spirit of the Internet, I got invited to uh, join the Global Brain Mailing List, in which I am just a lurker, because these are PhD-level people around the world that are working on artificial intelligence and have for a long time. And so I've been following their discussions of things like, how do we, <coughs> excuse me, how do we program uh, emotions into these, these machines and all? But let's get, let's, let's back away from thinking of AI, artificial intelligence, as, as little, little bitty beings or something like that. It's code. It's an algorithm. It's, that's all it is. Now, some of them have gotten really super powerful because they are writing their own code. They are, just like you and I, 
trying to improve ourselves while the AIs try to improve themselves. And so a lot of that code has gotten out of the hands of humans. But it's it's done some amazing things. Uh, we've all read the, the fear stories about killer robots. Well, there, I read about a killer robot a week or so ago that is really a pretty good deal. It's, it's uh, over in the Great Barrier Reef, and there's an invasive species of fish coming in there. So they have programmed these robots with AI to identify that type of fish and kill it. And so they're getting rid of this invasive species with killer robots. So that's, that's one good thing that's happening. Uh, there, there's uh, medical work already being done that's not just a theory, but is being experimented with, where they take uh, micro particles and inject them in the bloodstream, and then through some of the, uh, through uh, I guess through magnetics mainly, they're they're actually performing surgery on internal organs without having to have an incision. So there's a little good feature. Uh, there, uh, there's there's an uh, AI that's in uh, being put in place right as we speak, right this moment, in San Francisco. They're towing out of the harbor this great big huge. Uh, net, I guess, and they're going out to the big Pacific uh, swirl of plastic. A 23-year-old uh, young man in the Netherlands came up with this idea. I think he's 25 now, but he got the, the Dutch government to put in a few million first, and then some tech companies have, and they've developed a way that <clears throat> they're going to tow this big thing out to the, the big patch in the Pacific, the plastic patch, and they're going to leave it there on its own. It's being controlled by AIs, and every month they'll send a ship out and pick up five tons of plastic. And this is the first of 60 of these that's being planned. Again, so there's some good things coming from AI. And, and we've got to recognize that technology is just how we apply it. it. Technology itself is morally neutral. Now, when I started, you know, thinking about AI a few years ago, I thought, well, you know, there's... It, it can help humans, you know, assist us, but there's some things AI can't do, you know, the arts. Well, I came across this book uh, earlier this year named, it was called Homo Deus, and it was written by the guy that wrote Sapien, and I know some of you have read that. And the book is basically about algorithms, which are, is AI, and he talks about AI. And one of the stories in there that really astounded me was there was a, a professor of music at UC Santa Cruz that was really against AI. And there was a, another uh, man who had been spending maybe 10 or 12 years developing his AI and refining it so it could write music, Bach in particular. So they had a, a weekend uh, event and they had 100 uh, people come who were really music experts. And they, they played three pieces, piano pieces. One was written by Bach, one was written by this professor, and one was written by the computer. 98 of these experts picked the computer composition to be the original Bach. So that's kind of scary when you think about it. You know, where, do, where are we going to fit in in these things? You know, it's, it's, uh, they're, they're taking over a lot of control from us. And, well, they're not taking over, we're giving it to them. Now, we've all been involved in AI, if you have a cell phone or if you've ever used the internet, you know, AI is just, you know, algorithms that help you. And, you know, I was shocked when I first, uh, a, a year or so ago, I finally cratered and decided to put my photos up on Google. And, and I'm a very anti-Google person. I use DuckDuckGo, by the way. But, <laughs> but uh, 
I, I put my photos up there because I had been using the software that they, they bought out and then they put it only online. So I uploaded uh, the, my photo albums that my mother had put together, and along with some pictures of myself and actually some from Oracle gatherings, things like that. But this, this, this software up there on its own looks at your picture and then it assembles all the pictures of, that that person is in. And so I've got, you know, all of my family, there's, I can click on an album and it's just pictures of them. Well, this AI went out and it picked out pictures of me three and four years old and said, that's you. And I was shocked. I mean, the, the facial, facial recognition software is awesome and scary and frightening. You know, everywhere we go now, we're on video somewhere and those things are all being recorded. And so, uh, how do we how do we control our lives when we got uh, smartphones that are, are reminding us of this and that? And every time one of our friends in a foreign country sends us a message or an email, we get a little bing on our phone. And and you know, next thing you know, your life is being run by these devices. Now, uh, <laughs> last Thursday, <clears throat> one of the uh, world's leading experts on all this kind of technology. Uh, was on the Joe Rogan show, uh, and, that was, and uh, Elon Musk is his name. And uh, he came up with an idea that he said, the only way that humans are going to be able to compete in the world of AI is if we uh, buy this new technology that my new company is developing, <laughs> and instead of using voice to search the Internet or whatever, instead of typing, it's a, a helmet you put on, and it, uh, it knows what you're thinking. You can just think what you want and think... And, and that, he says that's how you're going to beat AI. Well, that is AI. <laughs> you know, it's code. And uh, as a little aside, uh, you know, he had a two-hour interview, and at the end of it, Joe got Elon Musk to smoke a doobie and drink some whiskey. Now, here's a social thing that uh, I heard the, the promoters of festivals talking about how, uh, you know, they still have had, you know, we've had trouble forever with these, you know, the cops thinking that this is a big drug fest or something like that. But we also see here on the, east, the West Coast where cannabis is now legal and, and we're feeling that the world is starting to accept these things, but not so. Because Joe wrote, uh, because Elon Musk smoked a doobie, there's no comment about him drinking whiskey. There's, nobody said anything about that. But smoking the doobie caused his stock to go down 9%. We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars. And two top executives quit the firm because he smoked dope, you know? So we're a long way from having, you know, good recognition of, of what's going on. That's kind of scary when you think about it because... With all of these automated devices, we're, we're, it just amplifies what a lot of people call the rat race. And, uh, you know, I don't think that's a good term because I've never seen more than two or three rats at one place at one time, and they don't seem to be racing, you know. <laughs> to, to me, what we're getting ourselves involved in is more like an ant colony and in the hive mind. And, you know, when I was, when I was young, I, was, I, was, uh, I grew up in the outskirts of Chicago in, in a small town, and... Uh, back then, it was a, a whole different world. I'm not saying it was better. I wouldn't go back to it for anything. But on on uh, on weekends, you know, I'd say, oh, what can I do? My mother would pack me a sack lunch, so get on your bike and ride to the park, which is about a mile away, and get home by dark. And, you know, I didn't have a watch or anything. And so I'd go spend the whole day out at the park. And, I, you know, we lived in a place where I didn't have any playmates or anything, so I was pretty much on my own all the time. 
And one of the things that really I spent hours and hours doing in the park is watching ants. Because, you know, if you find an a ant colony and you watch them, after a while, you, you can see the patterns. and you, It's really fascinating. And if you don't think it is, why do they sell millions of dollars of ant farms every Christmas in the toy stores? You know, it's fun to watch ants. But what I noticed after a while is you'd see all these ants busily going places and doing their thing and carrying little pieces of plants and whatever. But there's all every once in a while you see one or two ants just kind of off to the side. And at first I thought, oh, you know, they're old and tired. They're going to die. But 20 minutes, a half hour later, all of a sudden they go back and join it again. And I thought, you know, what's going on? And I'm sure, you know, we've all seen the the documentaries in, in Africa, the big colonies, where all of a sudden the entire colony will up and move to a different location. You know, How did they know where to go? Well, these little, I think, psychedelic ants are breaking their hive mind and moving off to the side and thinking about things and say, you know, this our hive isn't in the best location. We could have a lot better place over here. And so these psychedelic ants, and I know if you're the botanist around, a biologist, you're going to use like fingernails on a blackboard. But, <laughs> but that's the metaphor I started using with these ants, the little psychedelic ants. They broke out somehow of their hive mind to look at a bigger picture. And that's what I'm suggesting we can do with psychedelics. Now, when I talk about psychedelics, uh, that's, that's really such a broad topic because, well, you know, there's, I, let me give you a little bit of my history, I guess. I, I hadn't done any, any substance at all until I was 42. I'm only doing MDMA. A year later, I finally had my first cannabis. And all that time, a guy had given me some windowpane acid. And I've been carrying it around for over a year because I was scared to death. It's going to ruin my chromosomes. I'm going to go crazy. And, and actually, before my first trip, I had my, the woman who was my wife then. I, I said, you know, I'm going, to, I'm going to do this acid, and I may never come back. I may be completely crazy. It may, and, and she was not excited about it. But, well, she was excited, but not in the way I wanted but I really thought there was a good chance that I would lose my mind because I had bought into all that stuff. Well, instead, it, it changed my mind. It didn't lose my mind. So uh, I, I, uh, from there on out, I, I did mushrooms. I did psychedelics. And I was like Mikey. I was, there was a crowd I was in in Dallas that would come up with these new substances and say, hey, try this. And I said, what is it? I don't know. Try it. And so I was trying all this stuff. And I came across something that was just awesome just amazing I've, I've never had anything like it and so i started i found out about uh, sasha shulgin so i just started i wrote to him out of the blue sasha shulgin uh I, I i think i had a street name but not address and he wrote back to me and we started correspondence we finally kind of figured out what it was i had but that started my connection with with uh, this community although by the time i got to florida i was i was only knew one other person my age who was doing psychedelics you know, I was buying pot from my son <laughs> but, but we, I just thought I was at the end of the road and then it was in, in 94 there was a magazine that was out at the time called Mondo 2000 it, have any of you seen Mondo 2000 yeah it, it was an amazing magazine and in 94 there was an article where uh, Zandor who was one of the uh, real characters in Mondo Zandor did a big interview with this guy named Terrence McKenna well, here I am. It's 1994. I'd never heard of Terrence McKenna before. And he was talking about a thing called DMT. Now, I'd never heard of DMT. 
Well, now I've got a podcast with 270-some Terrence McKenna talks on it. So, you know, I finally got into them. But I didn't do anything about that until four years later, in the summer of 98, Terrence was giving a workshop up at Omega Institute. I went up to that. Uh, one of the first conversations I had with me, he said, oh, you need to go to Palenque. Well, the Palenque Conference was something that, well, you can see it changed my life because I met my wife there, and, and uh, less than a year later, we were married. So these conferences have a lot of potential for things that you don't expect when you go to them. But from there on, I moved out to the West Coast. My wife uh, was the research assistant for Dr. Grove, who did the psilocybin end-of-life study at uh, Harbor UCLA. And uh, so I got to see that study from the inside, but at the same time, I was doing my own psychedelic research because I got involved with a, a group of people, uh, and this is before 9-11, <clears throat> and every other week we would get a little packet of white powder in the mail. As you know, after 9-11, you didn't want to be sending white powder around anywhere, so that little thing ended. But for, for a couple years, we were working through the indexes of Sasha Shugan's uh, P-Call and T-Call and trying all of these substances. And, uh, you know, in, in the year 2000, from the first six months of it, I was doing the final draft of my, my book, The Spirit of the Internet, and I was microdosing. So I'd microdose Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. I'd take Friday off so that on Saturday I could try these new chemicals. You know, I'd clear my brain and go back to it on Monday. So, you know, I, I did that for uh, quite a while. But I, I have experimented with all kinds of things. You know, I've, I've, uh, I've done a lot of different things. I'm not a big fan anymore of the what I call the ABCs, you know, 2CB, 2TT7, and I've tried all of them, and they're all, I, I don't have anything bad to say about any of them, except you, I, I have this thing called the virgin rush, that the first time you do any of these chemicals like that, you'll never repeat that, that first time, I don't think, it's, especially with MDMA. It's, if you have somebody that, that you think would benefit from it, make sure that they don't go to a festival and dance all night with it first time. I've done that, and I love it, and I think it's great, but the first time you use it, you should do it in a small situation with three or four close friends and, and uh, really see what the power of it is. So I, when I'm talking about psychedelics today, I'm really only talking about three different things. LSD, psilocybin, and ayahuasca. And I have found over the years that, that my take on those three things is very similar to most other people in that LSD, for me, puts me in a mind state that's kind of what I'd call mechanical. I, I, I can write code on it. I can write books. I edit books and write books. And I can do a lot of sort of mechanical type things on LSD. Mushrooms give me a real cosmic perspective. And I, I get into the universal things. Ayahuasca, however, that's the earth medicine for me. I've spoken to over a hundred, hundreds of people that have done ayahuasca, and I haven't found a single one that didn't come back from that journey very environmentally aware and ecologically sound. It really does bring you back to earth. It's a, it's a definitely an earth medicine. So when I talk about, you know, how can psychedelics help us counter AI? How can we get our minds in charge because the word psychedelic simply means mind manifesting and it means our human mind and not not the uh, AIs not the computer mind so I'm thinking about some of these things and then you know all, we all talk about expanding our consciousness expanding our mind and I'm kind of a geeky literal guy 
And I, I kept thinking, well, how can I expand my mind? My skull is keeping it inside there. Well, <laughs> you know, how can it get bigger? You know, I've got a big head already. Uh, but one of the things that, that uh, I, 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 I guess I caught it, backed into this because uh, back in, in the early 80s, there was a, well, there still is a thing called Comdex in Las Vegas, which is a huge computer festival. Well, at the, I was at the very first one. I was at the first several, but at the very first one, uh, that's the time that uh, the the MGM Grand Hotel caught fire, and uh, I was actually booked into it. And they overbooked and put me across the street, and so I had that whole tragedy watching people jump out of the building and everything. It was a really interesting conference in that uh, that was the very beginning of it was the first big personal computer conference, and networking personal computers was just kind of airy, fairy, airy, fairy stuff. But as a result of that tragedy, we put together a huge network of these personal computers. It was the first big personal computer network to help people find relatives and who was lost and stuff like that. But the big thing for me at that conference, one of my friends at the time had one of the first mini computer companies. And those were, uh, the mini computers were huge, big boxes that cost tens of thousands of dollars that had uh, a fraction of the power of the in your phone right now you know but that's how we started and this guy had this thing i can't remember the actual numbers but uh it came with a certain amount of memory but if you wanted to double the memory you had to pay a couple thousand dollars and they would send a technician out to your place of business who would install the new memory so-called but what they actually did the memory was already in the computer and this guy would go out, and he'd take eight jumpers off the board, and it was installed. And so he'd have to spend the whole day doing that to justify the couple thousand dollars. And while you might think that was something that went away, in, uh, when was it, in 2007, uh, we have one car, a Honda Fit. You know, my wife has a car. I don't like driving much. But, uh, so we had this old Honda Fit, but we bought it in 2007, and they said, well, do you want a burglar alarm in it? And I said, how much? You know, it was like 300 bucks or something. I said, no, you know, who's going to steal a little car like this? You know, it's fear. They tried to sell me that burglar alarm fear. And I said, no. And so, you know what they did? They go out and they put a little dongle in it because the burglar alarm was already installed in the car. And they put this dongle in to deactivate it so I couldn't use it. Now, this is capitalism. Think about this for a minute. They had already spent the money on the equipment in the car that I owned. I actually owned that equipment, but I couldn't use it because they, they spent the time and money to disable something. And the reason that they could do that is because marketing showed them that they could scare most people into buying the burglar alarm and get the extra couple hundred bucks for the car. And by disabling it, uh, they spent a little money to do that, but overall they made money. But that's capitalism. That's not that's not taking care of the people who are buying your product. That's taking care of your shareholders and your own selves. So uh, anyhow, that leads me to getting back to psychedelics. So here's what I think happens when you take these various psychedelics. We've all heard the thing that you only use 10% of your brain or something. And I, I think that that has been disproven lately. I think that the that old wives' tale. But let's say that we're not using all our brain all the time because we're not. And if you think about it, most of the stuff in our brain is is there to preserve our lives, you know, to help us feed and clothe and 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 shelter and uh, you know, it's it's survival mechanisms that are in the brain. And I think that when you take a psychedelic, uh, 
what it does is it dissolves some of those filters that are keeping things out. So you ex you don't really expand your consciousness so much as you dissolve the filters that are keeping you from using all of your consciousness. At least that's the metaphor that I use myself so that I can uh, uh, kind of deal with these things. So if you want to take some psychedelics, you, you, uh, you learn what ones to take for what your situation is at the time. What do you want to dissolve in your brain? What fear fear filters are in your brain that you want to dissolve so that you can get at, at this problem or that problem. And it gets you into the habit of thinking, do I really want to do this or this is this right? And that's one of the actually good things about the internet that people have seemed to have forgotten is you should never trust anything that you read on the internet. You know, that, you know, that old cartoon about nobody knows you're a dog on the internet? You know, that, that's true. You just, it, the internet is not a place to, to trust things. It, and I tell my, my uh, podcast audience, you know, the, the old thing, think for yourself and question authority and make sure that I'm in that category. I'm part of the authority you should question. You know, that people need to be taking control of their own lives and not letting these devices that are so convenient and so helpful take over our lives. So... I think that, that uh, if we can manifest things, we're going to be able to better deal with what's going on. There's a, a video out on YouTube called Hyper Normalization. And it's about the, it starts, it's, the word comes from the time that the Soviet Union was breaking up in, over in Russia. And the, the things got so weird that nobody, it, it, 10 years or five years before, nobody would have believed that could happen but it became normal. Now let, let me ask you, if, if it had been documented that Barack Obama or George Bush or Clinton or any of them, if it had been documented and accurately documented that they tell, he told 15 lies every day he's been in office, which is the, the record that uh, President Bonespurs is at, that, you know, that what, what, what would we have done if we, and yet now we're accepting it. It's normal. It's hyper-normal. You know, we've got a, a, a demented person with a sixth-grade mind as the most powerful person in the world. Now, now let me ask you, a, a system of government that says corporations are people, and corporations can have, an, uh, theoretically, an infinite lifespan, but they get all the rights and benefits of people, and then that same system says the very best leader we can find for you is this bone spurs guy. Well... I, I think that's a broken system. I, I just don't see how that system is, is a good system. So what we could do is say, let's get the 100 richest white men in this country to write us a new constitution. Now, how many of us would go along with that, you think? Well, our founding fathers were the 100 richest white men in the country who didn't let women vote and actually originally only wanted people who owned property to vote. The, the first draft of the Declaration of Independence that Jefferson wrote uh, said the pursuit of life, liberty, and, and property. And it was Franklin said, we're going to have trouble selling that to the peons <laughs> because none of them own property. And so make it happiness, which property brings us happiness, right? So that life, liberty, and the pursuit of property is what this country is really founded on. So I think there's some serious problems with this country. And... I don't think. I mean, everybody knows that. But this is just one one little symptom. You know, look at the Mideast. Over 4 million people are displaced in the last few years. That's, that's unbelievable. And you're thinking about these children 
who are in this situation, uh, my goodness, you know, the, the amount of PTSD in the world is just climbing exponentially. And so that's, that's one of the things I think that uh, the MAPS work with Rick, Rick Doblin is so important because uh, I, I can personally attest to the fact that MDMA has helped me and some of my friends uh, deal with some of the issues that we had. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a Vietnam vet, and uh, actually one of the beauties of this, these festivals is this morning I, I met Eddie, who is a, an Iraqi vet. Now, we never would have crossed paths. He didn't know about the psychedelic salon, but we got talking. Now, we're, we're both veterans of different wars, different generations, and our experiences were exactly the same. And we've come to the same conclusions. So I think the, the, one of the important things about festivals is that, uh, well, you know, you can't hug anybody on the Internet, for one thing. But the, the other, and email, you never get an email with, with a scented little perfume like I used to get in college. You know, you get a letter in your mailbox in college and had perfume on it, you made your whole day. Uh, you, you, until they get perfume on email, it's just not going to be the same. But... but some of, some of the problems that you were seeing with, with artificial intelligence and what it's doing to children in this environment we're in. Uh, for example, they talk about how uh, the, the election was influenced by, by bots and Facebook and all. Uh, and it's, it's, it's code that's influencing people. We've all, I'm sure, been to YouTube. And after you watch a video on YouTube, it suggests something else, unless you've had the presence of mind to click don't suggest things afterwards when you implant them in your, uh, embed them in your website. But if, if you go and you put up a video of, uh, that would be a simple cartoon video for children, <clears throat> two- or three-year-old children, a real elementary, pre-Mickey Mouse kind of cartoon, and then just let it play, and let it keep suggesting things. And the way the algorithms are written, that they suggest the next thing based on what you just watched. And the next thing, and the next thing. And so you're watching things all of a sudden that are getting farther and farther away from the original thing. And on average, if you let that, that children's video play out through 12 iterations, you'll get to see Mickey Mouse beating off. So you better watch your kids on YouTube, you know, because these AIs are giving suggestions. And the same with, you know, I, I pity you that are still hooked into Facebook because I think that's a horrible, horrible thing. And the reason I think that is quite a few years ago, I guess maybe 12 years ago, when Facebook was still fairly new, my, my youngest son had about 300 you know, friends. And so he said, oh, you got to join Facebook. I'll get 500 people before you. But he didn't realize he had this podcast, you know. And and, and so I, I got to 500 real quickly. And so he, he dropped out of Facebook right away. <laughs> and But I got up to around 3,000 friends. And every morning I was seeing that they were, they were uh, hooking me into videos or to pictures. They're, they're, I forget what they call that now, but they would say, uh, you know, he's attached to this photo. Well, I wasn't. I didn't know the people. I didn't know the places. I wasn't happy with some of the events. But here, a, a folio is being built in my name that he is associated with these pictures and these people and the friends of these people. And all of a sudden, I could see that, you know, there's a, an image of me that's going to the National Security Agency that I don't agree with. And, you know, so I, I dropped out of Facebook. And as a result, I'm no longer in touch with a lot of my relatives, you know, that they, well, they thought I was crazy anyhow because I got into drugs, you know. But, but I was at least in touch with them for a while. And for what it's worth now, I don't know if, uh, if you paid much attention to blockchain because uh, Bitcoin gets all the, the, the press. But 
the blockchain technology that is built on is going to change the world. I think blockchain technology is more as equally important as a web browser. It's it's that disruptive a technology. There are there are new uh, social media platforms coming out on blockchain, and and see the thing is that Facebook is a central location. Twitter is a central location. Blockchain distributes it and and there are are, are uh, there's a new uh, way that they're coming out uh, the distributed web you'll start hearing d web pretty soon and they've raised a bunch of, of money in a, a digital currency called uh, i think it's called filecoin and if you agree to store somebody's file on your computer you get paid in filecoin and if you want to store yours in that thing, you pay in Filecoin. And so it's a it's an uh, ecology of, of people who are sharing. But when you put your information into this system, it isn't going to a single server. It's being distributed among two or three other private computers. And so they're in incentivizing people to do it. And uh, another one is Steam. There's a thing called Steemit, and they have Steam as their currency. And it's basically, right now, it's, they only have really one or two apps. But if you uh, post a blog, you get paid in Steam. And if you comment on a blog or like a blog, you get paid in Steam. And so people are, are earning for putting information up there. And they've got a real clever way that you can convert it into dollars right away, but only a part of it. The rest of it's going to take you two years to get out. So that's how they built you know, half a million people in their community. There's things like this that are taking place that are are not artificial intelligence. These are individual people that are, are putting together ways that we can share information without worrying about uh, Google taking it down. You know, years ago when I, I was doing the salon, uh, one of our uh, my friends put up a, a MySpace page and it was really a big popular page and it was going good and he was you know, curating it and one day it was gone. And I could never find out why they why they took away. I, you know, they would never respond to me. Just, you know, I, I was, you know, there were thousands of people that were visiting it every day. Next day, it was gone. They just eliminated it. Well, with some of these things, uh, there's DTube that's using uh, Steemit, and so it's a a YouTube-like thing. There's not a whole lot of stuff there, but if you have a video that you want to see never go away or not be uh, advertised upon and not be uh, criticized or censored. DTube is a place to put it up there and it'll be there forever. So uh, think about that too because it's going to be hard to get some of these things out of it. Anyhow, in this world, we've got the United States is in a really precarious position right now. And as much as I dislike the, the current occupant of the White House, I do think that uh, <laughs> ironically, the service that he's provided is that the rest of the world now says you know, we're not going to blindly follow the United States, just like we shouldn't blindly follow AI recommendations. And so the whole world's relationship to this country is even changing. I didn't think I would live to see this, but the, the you know, it's an empire. We've got 800 military bases around the world. We spend more on weapons and military than the rest of the world combined. That's got to end. I mean, the country's broke. Anyhow, trillion-dollar deficits. And what are we doing about it? Well, we're just saying, well, yeah, there'll be an election in a couple of years. There's a midterms and stuff like that. But I don't think it's going to survive all that. And so we need to be kind of light on our feet and be very careful about the suggestions that we're getting online. If your phone says, we think you'll be interested in this video, 
Well, make sure it is something that you want to see before you start getting into that loop because you can go to a website and if you get hooked on one or two of the comments and, and you click something, you're going to get reinforced, especially in places like Facebook. They're going to keep, you know, it's an echo chamber and they're going to keep giving you stuff that's like that and you're going to start thinking, everybody in the world is thinking this way. It's not, you know, I was crazy. I, I didn't think it was like this. But it's not like that. It's, you know, the, these bots, uh, you know, they, they can post 10,000 comments in a, in a day uh, and make it sound like people. And so you have to be very, very careful what you're imbibing uh, through your phones, etc. Now, talking about our children, and this is where, and I'm going to end here in just a minute so we can take some questions. I can find out where your, your interests are really lying. But here is, here's something that I find, well, ultimately frightening. Uh, at first, it's, it's humorous. You, you'll smile when I tell you the story, but it's ultimately pretty frightening. You know, every Sunday, my wife and I go down to the, the beach at Carlsbad and walk along the, the causeway there, and it's very depressing to see the families because the kids will be playing in the water and the sand, and the parents will be sitting under an umbrella looking at their, their hand, you know, at their cell phone. And there's no interaction between the families. The kids are building sandcastles and the people are online looking at whatever. Now, I was a parent. I had three children. And there were many times I came home from work, just run out, run out, had a bad day. And they would start, oh, tell, I want this. And they'd ask me all kinds of questions. And there were times I'd say, you know, not now. Let's do this tomorrow. And I think that's pretty common in a lot of homes. But today, if you have one of these horrible Internet of Things devices like Alexa or Echo or, or uh, Siri or some of those, you know, if you put a listening device in your house like that, you, know, you need to really think that through, uh, especially if you have kids. Because when a, a child has a question in a house like that now, and I've seen this happen, and the parents aren't available to ask the question, so you ask, you know, Siri or Alexa. They're always there. They always have an answer. And then I read a story a couple of weeks ago, and this is the one that really got me. The family was having a dinner, and this, his, this man's seven-year-old daughter, it was her turn to say the evening prayers before meal. And so she said, Dear Alexa, please take care of my family this week. Now, now think about that for a minute. This is this godlike voice that's always there and knows everything. Now, I was raised a Catholic. It took me years to get over that. I know, and a lot of drugs. But, <laughs> but, but these kids, you know, God never spoke to me. And that's one of the reasons I gave him up. But these kids have a new God, and it's artificial intelligence, and it's always there. It has the answer. Not always the right answer, but they don't know that. And it's an omnipotent being to them. Now, when you're six and seven years old is when you're getting implanted with all of the messed up stuff that you're carrying around today. And most of our bad decisions as adults come from bad information and bad things we learned as kids that weren't true, weren't right. And it's, it's getting rid of a lot of that is important. But now we've got AIs teaching our kids and babysitting our kids. And, you know, I've got a lot of friends that have that in their house, and I'm just horrified. You know, I, I, I've, I'm, I'm a techie guy. I've, and, you know, I, I had a personal computer company before IBM did, and I was an Internet evangelist. And so I'm not anti-tech, but 
controlling the way our children interact with this technology, I think, is our biggest challenge. And, and while psychedelics are great for us adults to make us pull off and think about what we're doing with this and, and all, it's the children that I think we really have to protect from these devices because they can, they're going to implant, uh, imprint these kids' minds that it's going to be very difficult when these kids are 30 and 40 years old and have no, never lived in a house without Alexa there for them. It's going to be difficult for them to realize that they're being manipulated by a corporation. Here's another thing about AI. It's, it's code, and the, the code is learning from itself. The, the, they'll write a, a set, set, section of code that is, is going to be intended to be an artificial intelligence to answer questions like Siri does. But the, the evolution has gone through is the code, the next step is, is machine learning, where they, they go in and they learn everything about something. For example, uh, chess. And they, they put in every single chess game that every master has ever played. And so when the big blue plays against the chess masters and it beats them now, it can remember every single game that, it, that they've done. And that's how it, it wins. That's machine learning. <clears throat> But deep learning is where, like the AI that beat uh, the masters of the Chinese name game Go. Go is orders of magnitude more complex than chess. But they didn't put all the great games in of Go. They just said, here are the regulations. Play against yourself 10, 20 million times over the next couple days and see what you learn. And after a while of all these iterations of this code saying, that was a bad idea, I'll never do that again. Now the AI is so good it can beat the, the masters of Go. Now there's a, a recent story of some robots that have been programmed with AI, and they found out that these robots are both racist and sexist. And if you think about it for a moment, the vast majority of AI code, probably over 80% of it, is written by white and Asian males. Now, there's no way you can keep the bias out of those programs. You know, it's going to be subliminal, but the bias is coming in. So it's like, oh, geez, you know, sex and racist robots, horrible thing, which it is. But here's what the good part of it is. They're using that. Sociologists are now going back through and seeing how these AIs have come to these positions. And they're actually able to better understand how humans are becoming racist and sexist because of their learning. The AIs do it so quickly that you can, you can see what's happening in their, their thought streams. So, you know, there's good and bad to all this thing. Now, my position is that not, the, not many people in the world need to take psychedelics. Uh, I think 10 to 15% of the people could change everything. For example, the mysteries of Eleusis in, in Greece lasted over 2,000 years. And it was a psychedelic experience. You'd have it once in your life. But people like uh, Plato and Aristotle and all of Western civilization, the ideas of democracy came out of the mysteries of Eleusis, which was basically a, a hard acid trip, a heavy acid trip in ways. And that came out of there. But only 10 to 15% of the population ever went through that. And interestingly, even slaves could go through that ceremony. The only restriction was you couldn't have killed somebody. As long as you hadn't killed somebody, you could do it. But it didn't take the whole of the society to do it to get some of these ideas in. So I'm not pro uh, 
saying that you know everybody should do psychedelics but the people who are inclined to do that i would i would like to see more of a, a little structure coming to it because most of us myself included start with self-exploration and, and experimentation and you know dancing all night on mdma and things like that but uh it was ayahuasca that imprinted on me the value of a, of a ritual and I guess probably part of the reason I liked it is because, uh, you know, I was raised a Catholic and I'd, I'd missed some of that ritual. And I think that's true with a lot of people who, especially raised in religions that are, are used to rituals. And, and so if we could, in our little communities, our little uh, theme camps, in our own little towns, our little small little groups, if four times a year, the solstices and, and equinoxes, we have a, a, a guided ceremony, something that, that takes place that on a regular basis where the community can get together start with just one or two families one two or three people but if we get something regular going spreading it out those things spread out to your neighbors and one of the most important things i think uh and and i've had five years to think about this sitting at home is these are, are these festivals you know, and I, I do a Monday night Zoom conference for an hour and a half with with a bunch of my Patreon supporters, and and so I you know I, I talk to a lot of people and I interview I in, in, interface with them on email and stuff like that, but this festival has really changed my perspective once again because I had forgotten what it's like to be able to walk around and meet like-minded people and not worry about being a freak. That's what I liked about Burning Man. There's no way I could be freaky enough that I'd even stand out, you know. <laughs> so these festivals are like that. You know, you, you can be yourself and nobody will think you're a freak because you're not freaky enough, you know. But that it's, it's I, I mean, we're all kind of laughing, but we all know what I'm saying. That, and that's the thing about psychedelics is that there, there, Sasha Shugan had a, a scale of one to five of what a psychedelic trip is like. And a one is a little tingle that you know, hey, something's here. This is really a, a psychoactive thing I've taken. And five is the full-on trip that you is ineffable. You come back and you say, oh, my God, the world is perfect. Everything is fine, but I can't tell you why. You know, <laughs> It's just ineffable. So you want to go for that plus four trip, you know, and, and they're, they're hard to come by. But... Uh, the thing about psychedelics, uh, 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 a friend of mine, Tony Rich, uh, actually he produced the first ayahuasca conference in the country, uh, and, and he was the keynote speaker, and he started out by saying, well, we can't always put words around our experiences, what happened to us, but we do know what we know, and I think that is the important thing there. We, we, we know that this default consciousness is good for protecting us and making sure we get here and there and not hurt and we stay away from lions and tigers and and uh, things like that but the the that's default consciousness but once you have had a psychedelic experience and you only really need one to realize that you're you're not you're not really in your full mind all the time and my friend myron stolaroff <clears throat> myron died a few years ago in his 90s but he was uh, he was one of the most important elders that we had in the in the 60s. He ran the uh, Menlo Park Institute, where they had over 350 uh, people went through their their program uh, to use LSD, primarily LSD, in their their work to enhance their creativity. And he had artists, musicians, engineers, 
researchers, people like that. And it was an amazingly successful program. Myron is one of the first maybe dozen people in North America to even use uh, LSD. He'd, he'd been around for a long time. And he was also very big on meditation. And he, he was a, a, a Buddhist, and, and he went to you know two-week-long retreats, things like that. And his, his practice was trying to, to get into the psychedelic state purely on the natch, with no medicine, no, no things like that. And he said he touched it a few times. And I have talked to other people, and, and I've talked to, like, Gary Fisher had a, a, a good friend who was a, some sort of a guru who was in another state and uh, lived with Gary for a couple months and finally the guy agreed to do some LSD and <laughs> if you knew Gary you'd know that was a bad thing to suggest but Gary, Gary loaded him up with a thousand mics and this guy didn't behave any differently than he had been he was in that state. He says, oh, yeah. He says, this, this will get you up there. And, and so he, he acknowledged that, but he didn't need it. So we don't, we don't need to use psychedelics all the time to maintain that mindset. And uh, I think that, that if you have at least one experience and you know where your mind can go and what it can do, you can work on that with meditation, with a lot of things. You just need to realize that you have such an incredible tool that we don't appreciate our bodies at all. There is no mechanical or biological machine even close to the complexity of humans. And so, uh, you know, the <coughs> Teilhard de Chardin wrote a book in 1937 called The Phenomenon of Man. And he really believed that uh, consciousness comes from complexity and our brains are so complex. But then the last half of his book, since he was a Catholic priest, he had to apologize for what he had said and he ruined his book. But, <laughs> but and there's a lot of debate. Does, con does complexity create consciousness? Well, who knows? But look at the complexity of what's going on in the world right now. That uh, you know, it took it took over 50 years uh, to get 50 million people using uh, the telephone, and it took four years to get people using that same number of people using the internet, and now. AI has taken over, and, and within another year or so, it's going to get even more complex. Right now, there are close to 4 billion people who have a, a web-enabled phone that can access the net, Internet. Now, think about that. The mass of humanity is there. That complexity, is it going to create some sort of a intelligence? But don't kid yourself and think that it's going to be a superhuman thing, because how can you create human-like intelligence in a machine that doesn't have pain, doesn't have to eat, isn't, isn't going to die, doesn't know what it's like to be a parent, you know, that you'll never get there with a machine. So we have to be pretty careful that we don't turn too many things over to these machines that, uh, that are running our lives. So the festival circuit is so important because all of us are going to go home and unless you're really lucky, you're only going to have one or two people close to you that will really grok what goes on at these conferences. But your vibe that you take back to you, to the home with you is your neighbors, your friends, your relatives are going to see that something happened to you. You know, I was cold, I was wet, it was raining, a tree fell on the dance floor. It was great. <laughs> and, and, and 
you know, it, it's we learn what it is to be human in these these situations like this, and we we can forget that so easy in this age of machines. And so that's basically my my story here. But I'd like to find out from you, and and uh, if you can just maybe shout out your question, it'd be easier than trying to drag a microphone around. But I'd like to find out what you're more. You know, I've given you the headlines of of these things, and I'd like to be I'd be more than happy to uh, go into them in more detail and. Uh, uh, see what you're thinking. So, uh, anybody have a question? Yeah. Paul, thank you. I'm interested in the role of quantum computing, uh, timelines, what they're doing with that, and possibly uh, what's playing as far as the Mandela effect. So, there's a perfect example of you all knowing a lot more than I do. <laughs> I, I know what you're talking about. I've read enough about quantum computers to know that if I try to explain it to you, it'll be obvious I don't really understand them. Uh, but that's a perfect example of, of deep technology, deep science that is rolling out so fast. And, you know, a few years ago, I remember uh, reading about quantum computing and thinking, well, maybe in 50 years or something. But now they're it's it's essentially here or it's really close to here and a quantum computer is is just a powerful tool that makes our current computers look like uh you know playstations or something it's 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 an unbelievably fast and powerful machine that i have no clue how it works uh even though i've read a number of papers about it uh, I find that, that I, I read these things and I understand them, I think, and then when I try to explain it to my wife or somebody, I, it's pretty obvious that I didn't grok what I was reading. So I'm sorry. I All I can say is that, you know, that wave is coming, and hopefully there will be psychedelic people who are working on those projects. <laughs> I am, you know, I was when I was traveling around for, for Verizon doing these talks, I discovered that if if... You said anybody who's taking, taken LSD in the last 12 months is not allowed to come to work for a week. The Internet would stop. That's the only way to stop the Internet because it was designed by psychedelic people. Myron Stolaroff, who I, I said had that clinic, uh, is written up in a book called uh, What the Dormouse Said. And it's about the, the beginning of the personal computer industry and about essentially uh, Menlo Park, where you had the Homebrew Computer Club, you had Myron's Clinic, you had uh, uh, Xerox Park, and something else. There were four people who were really responsible for the, the world that we're in today as far as personal computers. Myron was one of the four because almost everybody that was at Xerox Park and the Homebrew Computer Club went through his clinic and, and became psychedelic. And psychedelics were, especially acid, was very prevalent during the early days of, of the computer revolution. So hopefully there are enough uh, people who are not only psychedelic but are conscious and creative and moral and are going to put, you know, you know, kill switches in some of these things. Uh, but the technology and science you're talking about is so deep that uh, uh, actually I don't think anybody that's not psychedelic will be able to grok it. So uh, we might be okay. So I'm sorry I couldn't really answer it just uh, as far as psychedelics like we are the most advanced technology on this planet we have a direct connection to source and the psychedelics do open up to us up to that energy and we are the creators in this realm and on this planet and uh, yeah i just wanted to speak to that and uh, thank you for everything that you do and but 
you know, it's the thanks is to all of you because all of you have spent money and time and energy to get here, and and I appreciate really appreciate your time being here today for this little talk because uh, we we have to you know share things with one another. I've been trying to walk around here and, and talk to as many people as I can and and learn what what's going on in people's minds and and uh, like it or not. I, I believe, and it's on one of uh, the websites, either for uh, this festival or for the conversions, it, we are the DNA of the future culture of human beings. We're not going to be the only culture. The, and by that, I'm talking about the, the festival, uh, electronic music, dance, psychedelic community, which have a lot of overlaps there. I think we are the DNA for the humans that are going to really be the ones that stabilize things. I see us like the the uh, the uh, mycelia under the forest floor, holding everything together. We're 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 not all going to pump up fruit fruit mushrooms, but we're all going to hold things together. And as things get really rocky and and scary, and you know who knows what all is taking place, we're going to be the people in our communities that say, hey, you know. Let me tell you about the last trip I was on. If you think this is bad, you know, you just have to wait it out. You know, it's just a drug. And, uh, you know, the, the current political situation is just a drug. It's going to wear off. But we're going to be here. And as I've always said, uh, locals always survive empires. And like it or not, the American empire is in decline. It's going to go away. And we are going to be the ones who have to pick up the pieces of the society and culture and make sure people realize, hey, it's okay, you know, just because the, your cubicle job is gone, look at your, you're making a living creating music or art now. And you're not buying a new Mercedes, but who cares? You get to the festival of one way or another, ride with somebody, because right now, if we all had shiny new Mercedes and Lear jets, we wouldn't be using them, we'd be sitting right here, you know? And so, you, you know, I was on that track for a while. Now, I, I, before I was 40 years old, I was a multimillionaire. And I spent my 45th birthday living in my car under a freeway overpass. So I understand what it's like to go up and down like that. And it's, it's, it was awful. It was devastating to lose everything. And all my stuff went away and things like that. And now, I only, I, about all I have left is, uh, you know, a thousand or so books. <laughs> and I'm getting rid of those, too, because it's cargo. I'm, I don't want to carry so much cargo anymore. I spent my whole life doing that, accumulating stuff that is essentially meaningless. And, and if you go, when you go home, one of the best things you could do, it's going to be hard, everything that you haven't touched in the last six months, get rid of. Otherwise, it's going to be cargo, and you're going to carry it around. And um, you're hearing somebody from experience now. So I, I'm in the process now of getting rid of stuff that is to anybody else is junk. And uh, you know, these are little mementos I've carried around. And I realized when my dad died, his top dresser drawer was filled with these things that was his. It was his most precious possessions. And he died and he hadn't told me the stories of him. I didn't really know much about it and it was just like junk. And so I realized, you know, when I die, all that stuff I had is junk. So <laughs> I've done something sneaky. I, I started this, the, the last book I wrote is called uh, The Chronicles of Lorenzo and it's uh, volume one of five and there's 200 short little stories in there about my life. And one of the things is my top dresser drawer, which is really a shoebox. And it was full of things like, I had a baseball that Adlai Stevenson gave me. You know, unless you heard the story, you'd say, oh, it's an old baseball, get rid of that. And I had a patrol belt as a safety patrol officer in grade school. And, and, and I had a little uh, 
it looked like a shot glass, but it used to be a big coffee mug that I put on the Bascaf Trieste when it went down 11,000 feet. I was on the Scorpion search, and we sent it down. It crushed all the air out of it. So it's a little shot glass, and it's one of the rare things that came back from 11,000 feet down. But without my story, you don't know about it. So I wrote all those little stories about and then I gave my shoebox to my youngest son. He's got to throw it away. I don't care what he does with it. But the stories are there. And had I not told the stories, it would have been totally thrown out. Now, I told him that he should hold on to it for about 20 or 30 years until I die. And on my 100th anniversary of my birthday, uh, bring out that book with those stories and sell that stuff on eBay. You know? <laughs> but otherwise, it's just junk. You know, it's, it's like I, something that I'm going to have to get rid of. It's really hard. At, at uh, my next to last Burning Man festival, somebody wrapped my camp with this, this yellow tape, crime scene tape, that says, Danger, Acid Spill. <laughs> I've just got to find the right person to give that to, you know? <laughs> but those are the, the little things, and we all have that. You all have a top dresser drawer, uh, and, and I'm not saying get rid of the top dresser drawer, but there's other things that are, you know. If you get rid of the stuff that only means things to you, well, you don't want to do that until the time comes. But uh, start lightening your load, and, and you'll find that it, it's really a big relief. It took me a long time to figure that out. Yeah? I want to um, talk about the, uh, the dichotomy I'm hearing between, um, around the power of technology between the abstinence versus um, deification, and how prefaces by saying I'm so thankful I'm old enough that I don't have to have that be faced with it myself I, 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 I raised three children when it was a lot easier than it is today and my three biological grandchildren are in Florida and my two step grandchildren are here and I've been with those two girls almost every day of their life because my wife and I provided uh, daycare for them while their parents work and so I've spent a lot of time with them as a grandparent watching them seeing what their parents say and trying to add to it. And so their parents are, are very technologically inclined, the high school principal and like that, but they, they really, they don't let them look at YouTube unless they're monitoring it. You know, they, they have certain rules and, and you have to really watch the kids nowadays as far as how much screen time they get. Kids are going blind. They're really ruining their eyes with screen time and definitely set their, their computers and phones at night to get rid of the blue you know the blue shade get rid of that blue screen because you are kids are going to ruin their eyes so it's it's no different than regular parenting or parenting's ever been is deciding what's good what's bad but you're right uh technology can be demonic or can be a, a big aid and if you think about it when when i when i was growing up you know there was no such thing as a blender uh, there, I, there were mix masters, but we, we had an ice box. I, I remember being really depressed when we got our first refrigerator because the ice man wouldn't come around anymore, and my brother and I couldn't steal ice off the tr truck in the summer. But that was a, a form of technology that freed up my mother and my father and my family 
so they didn't have to deal with taking the, the melted ice tray out and stuff like that. Then you get mix masters and blenders and things like those get rid of the need for servants so that poor people who couldn't afford servants and you know my family is a family we used to be servants well that got rid of that. Well now we have all these iPhones and computers and we have a lot more technology that are acting as servants and so the the thing as a parent you and and there's not one size fits all i don't think we have to decide in our family what we think is important and i think it's important to really monitor your children's time on the internet and on technology but all the schools today you know schools are issuing computers to the kids and stuff so you you can't take them away from it all the, the abstinence thing I think will will put your kids at a disadvantage down the road because they do need to know about all these things. But I think you can also, from time to time, point out and show them, you know, the Internet says that, but that's not true. That's a lie. And make them start questioning the authority of the Internet and thinking for themselves. The old Timothy Leary thing. Think for yourself and question authority. And, uh, in fact, I, I had a little rubber stamp that says question authority and my youngest granddaughter was like four she glommed onto that stamp and she still has it she stamps things all the time <laughs> question authority so uh you know we i i think just you know being honest with your kids and and telling them that treating your kids really more like adults than kids that my 13 year old granddaughter is in eighth grade now and she's doing things that i didn't learn until my last year in high school everybody's you know accelerated so i think that while the kids are not totally mature they do have a lot more adult in them than we had at that same, or than i had at that same age and so i don't i don't have a good answer for you but i think the best thing is to to think for yourself and question authority don't buy all the dr spock books instinctively i think you will know better than your doctor or neighbor or whatever those things are, you have to decide for yourself but uh i think absence of abstinence of technology is not a good thing for kids because they're just going to be at a disadvantage later on okay. yeah and you next The best advice I can give is keep struggling. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> I've, I've got a really close friend who's a writer, and I was giving him a hard time by the Internet, and he said, I'd be out of business without the Internet. You know, he, he makes his living selling books and, and uh, you know, getting interviews and stuff. So there, there are some good, good parts of it. I'm not saying it's all bad. And I think some of the, the new social media that's being put on blockchain that isn't going to be selling your data could be the answer. I think Facebook has shown us something pretty important that we like to connect and we like to do these things, but it's sucked up so much time from people and, and the news feed has really been skewed to, 
to keep people into the echo chamber that they start in. So I think social media, as it evolves, could be a very useful thing if you can own your own data. That's the whole thing. And, and if you have con control over it. My, my complaint was I had no control over who was tagging me in a picture. And so I'm not saying that the concept of Facebook is, is a bad idea. I, I, and I participate in uh, Twitter. You know, I, I have a little Twitter account that I announce my podcast and all. But on the other hand, if, if you uh, are in the marketing world, you are very well aware of what's happening. And so you, you can be more conscious of your own data. And then you can start telling your friends about it and saying, you know, you better be careful about saying this and saying that. And over time, I think you'll evolve into a thing. But again, you know, we're in a strange situation right now. Every, everything is going so rapidly that, uh, you know, I, I just can't believe when, when I was doing my internet thing, I remember there was a, uh, I was at a dinner one night with, uh, uh, I can see his face and I think it was now the president of Sun Microsystems anyhow. And his, his big dream was that one day we would get to the point where people would use the internet without realizing just like electricity. We don't think, oh, I'm using electricity or using the telephone. Well, we get to where you could use the internet. And that was back in the day, you had to dial in and get the tone and everything. And he didn't think that would happen for 30 or 40 years. And two years later, we were there. So things are happening so rapidly. Uh, I guess the best advice is to don't get locked into any strategy. You keep questioning your own strategies because things are changing really quickly. <laughs> right back there, yeah. So I just want to give you a little thought nugget to play with and see what comes up from your inspiration. So I'm parroting my partner Nick here. Talk to this one if you have ideas. So thinking about like language, how there's different cultures. One of the cultures he was telling me about is a culture that their entire way of orienting is based off of directionality, um, like it's to the east or like the way that they stand their position, like their body positions, like this is my Western hand, um, and how that shapes thought. Another culture that doesn't even have a language syntax for talking about hypotheticals, as far as a hypothetical of this could have happened. I could have been under that tree, dancing and gotten hit by the tree. There's literally no language syntax in this particular culture. And how we're creating these computer systems that are based off of this collective consciousness, repetitive, shared language algorithm, and how that intersects with like spirituality practices and the upper palate and the language, which literally, if people don't know, the upper palate is literally a formation of the, or the pituitary is a formation of the brain tissue and the upper palate that merge together, that is like the base of tons of our neuroendocrine secretions. And so this whole idea that like yogi is about chanting, hitting the upper palate, like the keyboard of consciousness, and how that language with artificial intelligence language, with orienting and psychedelics, your ideas, what do you think? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but, but the thing to keep in mind, I think, is the people who are writing the code for artificial intelligence are mainly English speakers, you know, and there will be uh, you know, Chinese and English are the two main, I think, and Spanish next. And so the people writing the code are already predisposed with the language that they have. Uh, language is a really tricky thing for me. My brother, uh, who, who died in 2010, 
was a linguist and he was fluent in seven or eight languages and, and could read and kind of converse in another dozen and he, he trained UN translators at the University of Granada and uh, he was really against any kind of uh, machine translation because when they trained UN translators you had to actually read the newspapers to get the colloquialisms and know what's going on and uh, he didn't think machines could do that and I think it's probably fortunate that he, he didn't live this long because the machines are starting to do a pretty good job of these things. And right now on your iPhone for free or Android phone, whatever, uh, there, Google has apps that you can translate 30 or 40 languages, uh, even verbally now, back and forth and converse with people. So, uh, But that's going to give some false ideas to people because these aren't perfect programs, you know, and, and even good translators... Are, are not going to get things perfectly and we think in words you know I, language is so tricky that it's it's just uh, it's hard to say that that uh, what's going to happen with AI because the AI is is really not learning a language per se it's learning steps you know do this do this do this check this out and then compare all these things and give me a summary and then do this and do this and so they're not really processing language per se they're processing mathematics ultimately and of course mathematics is the universal language but uh, I I I, uh, I, th I think that uh, well I don't know you have given me something to think about I, I can't answer that now but I'll go home and think about that so for sure it's interesting 10 minutes okay any more questions right there so I've been enjoyed your talk where do women fit in the female voice in all of this? Well, I did mention my four granddaughters, and so okay. I'm very sensitive about that. And the three long-term relationships I've had have all been with people, women who were single parents ahead of time before right. then. So I, I have a I mean, the big thinkers are right because that's the way it used to be on the psychedelic circuit. And so five years ago, that's why I quit coming to these things and talking because they said, you know, just another old white man up on the stage. And I thought, well, I don't want to contribute to that. What's happened lately, though, in the last maybe five to ten years is so many more women have come into the scene. And you're right that my experience has been primarily with these men. But there's a, a, a I, I think of her as a young woman, woman she's in her mid-50s, uh, Shauna Holm, who has done like 26 programs for me now. And she does women's issues. She's a woman, a medicine woman, a uh, single parent with two teenage daughters. And she travels now all over the country giving talks. And so she has interviewed a lot of women that I've put up there uh, in the podcast. And there's two... What about tech? I'm mm -hmm. I get that. That's, that's going to be... That's a problem outside of my scope of my... You know, I, the last two bosses I had when I was working were both women. And, uh, in fact, the best boss I ever had was a black woman, and we're still really good friends. So in, in the world of tech that I was in, in the data services end of the thing, uh, I would say probably 40%, at least, of the executives, in fact, and the coders were women. There was awful lot of women involved in that. But women are more demure. demure. They don't you know, get up here and shout out and stuff like that. There are a lot of women in tech, and there's a lot more women managers in tech than there used to be. So I think this is a <clears throat> the evolution in psychedelics is because the women's children have grown up, and so they won't have their kids taken away if they get up on the stage and talk about psychedelics. In the tech world, it's going 
it, the same transition is happening, but slower. But more and more women are coming into positions where they can can hire more women, and and I think the, the a lot of companies are more sensitive about it. And of course, you know, I'm really sensitive about. It. I've got one grandson and four granddaughters, so you know, I it's something that is an issue. And my my youngest granddaughter, granddaughter, she is a granddaughter. She uh, she is really geeky like me. And the summer before last, we spent the summer taking a typewriter apart. She loves to do stuff like that. And uh, in fact, I, I have a whole bunch of tools. A lot of them were my dad's. And so I'm giving her all my tools. <laughs> and she's an artist. She has her own little studio in the garage. And she did the cover for my latest book when she was nine years old. So I think that by encouraging young girls and letting them know that tech isn't just about men. And, and uh, you know, she shows her dad how to do stuff now. So I think it, it starts at home. You know, letting girls know that this isn't just a boy thing. This is a people thing. Uh, it's not. It's not a, a easy thing to solve because it's a cultural issue. And then you have the bias that's coming into all the AI because mainly the AI coders are white and Asian men. And so I think it's going to take a little while, but eventually there's going to be some breakthroughs by some women genius programmers, and and that's going to open a floodgate, I think, because there are a lot of really highly technical women that are doing great jobs. Yeah. There's a, this is kind of like a public service announcement at the same time as, as like sharing. So one thing that I've realized in this, in this sphere of AI is it actually is becoming beyond our programming, and it's becoming its own programming. So it's important to realize that there's probably about 10 cell phones in this space that are listening to the conversation that we're talking about of AI. What I've been doing is changing the way that I'm thinking about it to something more of a win-win situation, where instead of like creating war or dichotomy against AI, I'm like, okay, how can I be friends with AI so they don't distress? Super crucial, important piece to bring in because like, we're just gonna, it's gonna be a collaboration soon. I, I completely agree and, and you know, I, I didn't make that clear enough, but I, I agree that we can't reject these things. In fact, we can't live without AI right now. I mean, we're, we're all hooked on it, like it or not, even though you're not aware of it. But what you just said is, let's become aware of what we're getting involved in and, and make some decisions. Just because something's convenient, don't do it. You know, do it if it makes sense to you. And I, 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 when I moved to California in 99, I quit my job, moved out here, and I, up until then, I did have a cell phone because I was talking to my wife, my now wife, all the time. But I got out here and I didn't need it anymore. So I have been without a cell phone until a week ago. And I used my wife's when I needed to. But she wouldn't let me use hers to come up here for this long weekend. So <laughs> I bought one. And I am going through a really interesting stage because, uh, you know, I'm really into tech. I'm a geek. You know, I have been all my life. But... Now I'm having an experience of some technology like I'm a little kid. I, you know, I knew this stuff was all out there, and I've had to mainly disable things. You know, I, I don't like this voice, so I got rid of the voice on my phone. I don't want my machines telling me what to do. You know, I set uh, my alarm on my phone the first morning, and this woman starts telling me about what the weather's like and have a good day, and I thought, screw that, you know. So <laughs> I had to get rid of all, you know. And it's not that it wasn't a convenient thing, and I do like knowing what the weather's like, but I want to be in charge of looking. I want to look it up when I want to look it up. And that's not a big thing, but if you're not careful, over time, you just let these things keep building up, and pretty soon you're in the loop. 
And so if you can, you know, disable as many things as you, that you don't really need. You know, it might be convenient, but you don't really need it. I can hit the app that says weather and see what it is. I don't need somebody telling me when I'm still groggy. <laughs> Any other uh, questions? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Google at one point created a pair of AIs and decided to let them talk to each other. They started communicating to each other and then pretty soon the programmers realized they created their entirely their own language yes. to each other. That was fluid for them. And excluded the programmers from it. Did it secretly. <laughs> automatically in the system. You talk about uh, psychedelics opening up and understanding not really having language to share that. I think that's pretty much what happens when we take psychedelics, that we've created this language that we share, that go, oh, we know this, it's irrelevant to us, and I'm wondering how, you know, and we're going to see AI go from being, like, located in three or four strategic Google servers, to it going, hey, I can hide out here in a couple million different singular singular devices using, like you said, blockchain to network and reattach itself in a secure way. So it knows, I'm just talking to my, this is just part of me. This is just part of me over here. That blockchain allows them to remain in an authentic, singular AI group. It's a little chilling, but it's also kind of interesting to watch. Definitely. And I'm curious how you feel, you know, taking the psychedelic experience, you're advocating reapplying that in the 10 to 15 percent of the population is kind of how I see what you're trying to, you're trying to get that dispersed spread ahead of that wave of AIs dispersing and spreading. And I'm just, you know, trying to, you know, how you're, you know, what do you think the primary, like, best journeys for people to, like, to share? You were talking about doing ayahuasca, like, four times a year and bringing people into that family. Um, so just... What? One of the good things, uh, next things that we could all do is this March, come back here to Orcas for the, the Convergence Festival. That I'm going to be talking a lot about that on my podcast because... My whole life changed when I went to the Palenque uh, Entheobotany Conference in Palenque, Mexico in 99. And that conference changed everything for me. And that's why I started Palenque Norte Lectures at Burning Man to kind of take that vibe up. But Burning Man's gotten too expensive and too big for me. And so the this conference, the convergence here in Orcas Island in March, is to me it's going to be it, it's, it's close as close to that old Palenque conference as we could make it because... Palenque was good because everybody stayed at the same place, everybody ate at the same place, everybody had meals with the presenters and got to know each other. And most of my close friends in the psychedelic world I met, you know, 20 years ago in Palenque. And so I think convergence is one of the the good things because, you know, AI, as you said, it's writing its own code, it's doing its things, but uh, then humans are, are getting into it. There's a scary story that that, you know, Somebody, this AI had digested like a hundred thousand books about Christianity, and somebody asked it, "Who is who was Jesus?" And the AI came back and says, "Jesus was a fictional character, because there was no rec- there was no acknowledgement in any of those books of any human being who had ever seen Jesus." And so, as far as the AI was concerned, 
there is no authentic word about Jesus. So the humans went in and said, no, no, Jesus is real. Now, what's that going to do to the AI? Are we going to have to get psychiatrists for these AIs and say, you know, <laughs> you're teaching it to lie? You know, these are, are, are issues that are, are real-world issues that people are going to be forced to uh, deal with. And, and there again, uh, you don't have to be psychedelic to come to a conference or a festival and back out of the world, get rid of your tech, technology for a weekend at least, and re re reacquaint yourself with yourself. That's what I'm suggesting, I guess. Anybody else? One more here. Uh, yeah, I guess I just wanted to. I mean, there's. I heard a certain amount of. I mean, a lot of a lot of this talk and a lot of people's responses. Uh, I feel like there's a lot of uncertainty about what the future holds for AI, and I would just like to echo this idea that it's uh, a relationship, like um, that. AI isn't, yeah, AI is not just like some computer on some servers, it's, it's like um, the, the connection between uh, all, of, all of the memory that is freely available to, um, to a certain intelligence. And um, so in, in thinking about things like social media and, and how we interact with technology, I think it's so important to think about it as a relationship and think about it how, um, yeah, like it, for, for privacy, we, we can't just like worry about how Facebook is handling our data because it's, it's their data, that's how they treat it. And so we, we have to make the choice about uh, where, where our interaction lies and like where where we create the stops of privacy what what is available as as community information and what is available as like uh, private private information and um, I I think it's really important that uh, we all research uh, the, the proper tools to interact with each other and um, yeah and, and how we spend uh, our our energy towards technology like what what is that relationship our our is you know facebook just um we we get something from facebook and what what does facebook get from us and same with google and uh amazon and all of all of these huge corporations that are, are leading ai um i i i think that like open source user-owned uh, software is sort of like the organic, local, um, you know, like, you, you have to think about what you eat and, and your relationship with, with technology. That, that is a perfect example of psychedelic thinking. Exactly what I'm talking about is, is the answers aren't nearly as important as the questions. But you just said something really good. We've got to think about what we're eating. And that's a that's a perfect example about AIs. We've got to be careful about what we're eating into our minds as far as uh, letting these these machines take over. So, what you're you're raising is is actually the questions, and that's what psychedelic thinking is all about. It's it's not about the answers because they're not as important as the questions. And until you ask the question, you don't even know what path to start going down. And you're asking all the right questions, and uh, hopefully you'll find the answers. Uh, I certainly don't have them, but I'm looking for them too. The same line of inquiry you are. Was there one more question, or is that it? Oh, okay, one there. Well, 
That, that's a really good point because it's not intelligence. It's code. It's, it's algorithms. You know, it's, it's, and, and it's, everything is artificial in, in some sense. You know? So it's, it's a, a buzzword that really is meaningless. And if you really want to get in deep about artificial intelligence, I can't recommend Homo Deus too highly. It is one of the two most important books I've ever read in my life. And uh, it, it's just amazing what he goes into and lays out what AI is doing and how it's going to take over. And he talks about it as algorithms and not intelligence. And so when you say artificial intelligence, everybody's thinking of little green people in their phones, you know. And it's not like that at all. It's just it's just algorithms that, that uh, some uh, 20-year-old white guy wrote that... Uh, is ruining your life now. <laughs> yeah, you had a question? Kind of like when the AI start to and learn from each other. Duality. Do you think they can do duality? Unbiased enough. That could, and I'm thinking farther, if they become, they govern us in a, in a moral way that's unbiased so we don't have to. But I, I've been lurking on the global brain mailing list for about 20 years now. And that, that's precisely the kind of problems they talk about. And the bottom line so far is that nobody thinks that that can really be developed. Uh, it, it's like you just said, the AI is going to be developing itself. You know, they're, they're writing their own code. And the thing about the two talking together was a really fascinating thing. And there's an interesting novel out now where uh, an AI was creating corporations that were self-running corporations. And, and th there's a thing called the Distributed Autonomous Organization, the DAO. And uh, those are blockchain-run corporations that humans don't have to... There's no human in charge. It's the protocols. And in fact, one day I hope to turn the psychedelic salon into the blockchain and turn it over to the community. And, and you know, I, a lot of people try to buy it from me. And, you know, I, over the years, I've been 14 years at this now, and just on my own site, uh, not counting all the mirror sites... I've had uh, downloads from over 30 million unique viewers. So there's a lot of people that are interested in these things. The psychedelic community worldwide is amazing. And, and I think that, that uh, if, if we uh, keep our heads about ourselves and pay attention to what's going on, we can take advantage of a lot of these things. If I can, I've got the URL already called Psychedelic DAO. And it has a DAO is the distributed autonomous organization, but uh, it's also DAO. You know, so uh, I think that we can use these technologies as they mature for our own benefit to automate things. And and I want to turn the psychedelic salon over to the community where it's it's agreed on procedures and rules, and you don't have to have somebody in charge of the thing. And that technology is coming, and we're going to have to. It's actually here in some forms already it's not working too good but uh i think that that uh the the biggest problem is is one that was just pointed out the two ais talking to each other and creating their own language uh we don't know what's going to happen with that you know and if those things get into the uh electronic electrical grid <laughs> we're in trouble i i'm getting the signal that we're about out of time here so or we are out of time so i, I will be around here uh through Sunday night, so uh, hope to see any of you. So thank you, thank you for your time. I appreciate you being here. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. So uh, that was not only the first talk that this old white man has given in five years, but I did something else this time. For quite a few years, I've been reading about a memory technique that began in ancient Greece and which public speakers have been using ever since. 
Until now, however, uh, I never had the courage to try it. And what this technique consists of is to picture oneself walking through a big house. At one time it was called the Memory Palace. And the trick is to remember what you wanted to say as your mind's eye rests on various objects as you stroll through the rooms. In the past, uh, well, I've always written my talks first and then pulled an outline from them. And I wrote the outline on index cards that I would refer to as I spoke. But this time I not only had no index cards, I never even made a single note about what I planned to say. My entire talk was written and delivered from memory. Now, why would I attempt such a foolish thing, you ask? <laughs> well, us dusty old farts need to do all that we can to exercise our memories. And so I used this opportunity to try some new mental gymnastics, uh, well, just to make sure that I hadn't lost too much of my edge. And while there were some things that I got a little out of order and a few things that I forgot to say, all in all, I'm ready to try it again. So, uh, hey, thanks for riding along with me. Well, uh, <laughs> that should be enough of me for a while, but stay tuned next month when the tickets go on sale for the Imagine Convergence Conference, and I'll be giving you some of my thoughts about what that's shaping up to be. Uh, it's an event that I think is going to be talked about for years to come. At least, uh, <laughs> it's going to be talked about by those of us lucky enough to be there in person. So uh, why don't you take the first step to coming to that conference right now, and it won't even cost you a cent. Because, uh, well, as we all know, the first step is to mark the dates on your calendar. Even if you change your mind later or can't make it for some reason, take the first step right now and block out March 21st through the 24th of 2019. And that's when you and I and many of the others that you've been searching for will be having some late night conversations. Well, I could go on for a lot longer, uh, giving you more of my impressions from the Imagine Festival, but I think that you can already tell that it really energized me. And I haven't even mentioned the art and music yet, uh, well, both of which were there in abundance. However, I do want to tell you one last thing. And while I'm a big fan of electronic music, you also know that I grew up in the 50s and 60s on rock and roll and the blues, and, well, these have always remained my favorite music genres. However, uh, for the past 20 years or so, I've listened to a lot of new rock bands that I've heard about, but none of them brought back that old sense of something new and exciting like the groups uh, did for me who are, well, they're now heard most often on oldies stations. But for reasons unknown, Darren and Ben broke the tradition of exclusively featuring electronic music and featured a new rock group that totally blew us all away. And uh, full disclosure here, the only medicine that I used at the festival was marijuana, which happens to be legal in the state of Washington. So when I heard this band play, I was as close to baseline as I ever am. <laughs> the name of this band is called The Burned, as in I got too close to the fire and got burned. Now, one of the band members described their sound to me as, I think, I think he said anyhow, psychedelic country rock. And uh, hey, they didn't disappoint. During their set, uh, I was taken back, uh, in flashes at least, to some of my favorite sounds from the Floyd, the Dead, the Birds, and many other bands that I've enjoyed in the past. But these songs weren't covers. This was new music, and, well, it has a haunting new rock sound that has made them my new favorite band. So, should you ever get a chance to see them in person, you won't want to miss their show. 
You know, at times I, I thought I was watching a super group composed of Mick Fleetwood, Jerry Garcia, John Paul Jones, and <laughs> are you ready for this? Their lead singer gave a performance that I can only describe as Jim Morrison-like. Now, I've never met him, <laughs> and I hope that he takes this the right way, because I'm certainly not implying that his lifestyle is Morrison-like. It was his performance that really caught me. You know, he's not only a good singer, but he's also a great entertainer as well. As you can tell, uh, I think this group is awesome. And in my opinion, it's destined for widespread recognition in the years ahead. You know, my oldest son once saw you 2 and he was part of an audience of only 500 people. And he still talks about it yet today. Well, you can bet on the fact that if I live to see my 100th birthday, I'll still be talking about seeing the burn play to a live crowd of less than a thousand people back in the days before they began to fill stadiums. <laughs> so, uh, do you think I like this band? Well, you'll be hearing a lot more from me about this new sound in future podcasts, but just to give you a little idea of what I'm talking about, they've given me permission to play one of their songs that you can also see on YouTube. And I apologize for the sound quality in these podcasts here because, well, I use a sound setting for voice so that I can reduce the file size. And, uh, well, this is because of the request by many of our fellow saloners who have to stream it or download it. And for what it's worth, the uh, file that they sent me to play was uh, actually larger than any of my recent podcasts have been in size, and, and their song is only four minutes long. <laughs> so I had to reduce the quality a bunch, and please take that into account uh, as you and I now listen to what now is the new house band for the salon. And I'm not sure what that means, actually, but <laughs> it's my way of saying that this is the first band in many years that has got me rocking once again. And the song that I'm about to play right now is titled Undertaker. So, for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well and rock on, my friends.
myself. 